You are listening to The Political Periscope, a weekly podcast brought to you by Radio WNET. Interviews on international politics, security, geopolitics, economy and more, every Thursday at 7pm. Today's guest of The Political Periscope is Greg Steban, American journalist, co-author of the book Does Putin Have to Die? written with Ilya Ponomaryov. Political Periscope. Okay, let's start with the obvious question. Does Putin have to die? <laughs> I guess when you write a book with the title, Does Putin Have to Die? It is an obvious question. And I think um, we have a point of view in this book. I, I actually helped Ilya Ponomarev write the book. So it's really his book with my help for an English audience. Um, before I tell you what we say in the book, I'm going to quote someone else who had a very, I think, a brilliant approach to the question. President Zelensky was asked something similar recently, and his response was, who cares? And I think that is the right response, because we should be all thinking about a future without a Putin. And in a future beyond Putin, Putin is no longer relevant anymore. In the book, we take a slightly different approach, or I should say Ilya takes a slightly different approach. You know, really, the idea in the book is that it's up to Putin about whether he dies or not. You know, he certainly has the money and the resources to leave, leave now and make sure that he is safe for the rest of his life and, and for the remainder of the lives of his kids and grandkids, he could do that today. And if he does leave today or tomorrow, there's a good chance he won't die except of natural causes. But if he doesn't leave, I think it's pretty clear that his life is going to end soon. It's not going to end well. But I don't think it's a Ukrainian or a Ukrainian military unit that's going to take him out. I think it's going to be somebody who's very, very close to him, who feels threatened by his actions who feels threatened by the future as determined by Putin and says, to protect myself, I have to take you out. Some ifs. So if Putin lives now and, as you said, uh, he tries to live normal life and uh, finish his days uh, peacefully, uh, don't you think that would happen something similar to Mossad hunting uh, Nazis after Second World War? Sure, but, well, <laughs> sure. But, of course... Again, it assumes he has the resources to buy the security he needs to keep those people away. I'm assuming he has those resources and people around him with both the expertise and he has the money to pay for whatever security he needs. Do you think it is possible and what needs what would need to happen for someone to decide to take this step? Well, clearly I'm speculating, but I think we're past the someone deciding part. I th I would assume we're in the I'm just waiting for the right time part. He's done too many things that just threaten, you know, when you start talking about nuclear warheads, that's going to make a lot of people nervous. And if I was around him, I'd be thinking, I got to kill him before he does it. You know, the other thing I'm going to be thinking is if he goes in the wrong way and that makes information revealed about, you know, the dirty the dirty laundry of his administration and his time in office, you know, maybe I've built my entire life and my wealth around that dirty laundry. That's another reason if I can take him out, I might be able to control the paperwork or the documentation or the paper trail. I, I, I cannot believe that there are not people in his inner circle who are thinking every day is today the day when I can do it and survive the, the, the assassination. But 
Putin's um, inner circle is one thing, has whole apparatus and also it said that maybe Putin is just the face of some system, of some regime, some FSB, former KGB regime. So even if someone kills Putin, there can be someone Another else. Putin. You know, we'll, well, when we talk about this in the book, I mean, the worst thing I think that could happen is Putin's gone and we get another Putin or something worse than Putin, which is why I think events like this are so important, is there the Russian people need to know that there's an, another body, an interim body that's ready and prepared to step in to fill that void going in the right direction instead of continuing to head in the wrong direction. That's why this event is so important. Otherwise, he's gone and it's a, it's a, it's a vacuum with nobody prepared to step in or the wrong people pre- prepared to step in or what's worse, the absolute worst people who've been standing by or even planned it so they know we're going to step in. You want to have alternatives and I think that's why we're all here. And you think this uh, event, uh, the body that's constituating itself here, um, is it a real alternative? I would think so. I mean, you have an awful lot of people here at this event and in the, this body as delegates who have a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge and a lot of wisdom. Um, but I think ultimately, if the goal is democracy for Russia, shouldn't it be the people who ultimately determine who rules them? And so I think it's up to the Russian people. And I think the Russian people are going to have to take the streets and begin protesting whatever happens to Putin to make sure that they do take control of their country instead of passively taking whatever is shoveled into the Kremlin next. The problem that I see with this approach is that uh, for last, well, centuries, Russian people didn't seem to have much political will to change anything. They were rather uh, accepting what happened to them. But the world around them changed. So, first of all, I've heard the argument, and I agree with it, that at some point the pain of doing nothing or accepting the status quo is worse than the pain of actually having a revolution. And I believe that is human nature. I also think that Russians, of which I am Russian of Russian descent, I think Russians are just other people who have lived under other systems and have been repressed. I think at some point the pain of the current system is so much that they revolt. I, I think that's inevitable in any humans. But I think the changes of the world around them is also significant. So, for instance, if you were a Russian soldier and you were sent to Ukraine and you were told that Ukrainians live like dogs your whole life and then you get there and you see these Ukrainians actually live a very nice Western lifestyle, how do you go back home not remember how much better that Ukrainian life was and how you were lied to about it, how do you not go home and think to yourself, I want to live like that instead of the way I live today as a Russian? You know, how many soldiers have been sent to Ukraine who are going back now whose view of the world has been changed and also changed by what's possible with a democracy in a Ukraine, in a Poland, in other nations that used to be part of the Soviet Union. So the world changed around them and as they get greater and greater exposure to what democracy and freedom is and the possibility of it, at some point, I believe there will be a break and they will fight for it too. And we're seeing that in other parts of the world as well, just like Iran. I don't want to trivialize and generalize, but uh, it seems that many of those soldiers, uh, they just uh, try to take part of this Western life uh, with themselves at home. Like, I mean, washing machine or refrigerator. Or or a toilet seat. (laughs) Well, but... 
but I would actually say that makes my case. They've recognized that, oh, over here, they have the freedom to have the things in their lives they want in a system that rewards hard work and, and again, freedom and democracy. And they're, they're taking those things home because they want them. And it's not just the material things I hope that they want, but I hope that they want also the system that allows them to live the same way. And the system that tries to introduce democratic system in Russia in the 90s uh, ended up in uh, electing Putin. Yeah. yeah, and we talk about that in the book. And again, when I say we talk about it in the book, it's really Ilya's book with my help. But that that is addressed uh, very assertively in the book because, as Ilya says, in some ways it gave people a negative or a tainted view of what democracy could be. But when you think about what democracy is, it's not a destination, it's a journey, right? I, I know that sounds trivial, but the United States is having struggles with democracy today. They've had struggles in the past. I mean, this is a country I know well because I'm from there. Uh, you don't get there and just stop and say, we're there now. So I look at Russia and I look at the period of Gorbachev and Yeltsin and I say, yes, it was a terrible time for the people of Russia, but it was part of the journey they had to take to get to ultimately having a better system for themselves that is truly democratic. You know, Poland has not been without its struggles and I think is struggling in some ways politically today. Ukraine has not been without its struggles. So to say that Russia cannot be a democracy because it failed in the 90s is, I think, to ignore the history of other nations that have been successful at getting where they are today. Do you think that after the war, Russia will really change the government but will stay in the same shape, the same borders as it is today or are we expecting some other changes too? I don't know that I'm the best one to ask that not being Russian. Um, I would say the borders are going to change in the sense that Ukraine is going to reclaim its land. So I think that is a that is a given, given a Ukrainian victory. Uh, will other parts of the former Soviet Union break away? I think that's up for them. That's for uh, it's up to them to decide, and I think they should have the right to decide it. And and I would hope that whatever leadership takes control of Russia would accept that if a nation wants to break away and be independent, that it should be able to break away and be independent. Let's change a bit of the topic. What do you think? How long can the U.S. support uh, continue its support for Ukraine? Can I answer that ne after next Tuesday's midterm elections? Uh, you know, it's been a big debate particularly recently in the U.S., the uh, some hard-right Republicans say, you know, for instance, to quote one member of Congress, not another penny for Ukraine. I think that attitude is is very much in the minority. Um, I think it's more grandstanding than it is an, actually a policy. Um, I think the U.S. and the West, and so I'm including Europe and, and, and other allies of Ukraine, understand that this is not a war between Russia and Ukraine. It's a war between Russia and the free world. And so we're not fighting. We're, yes, we're fighting with and for Ukraine, but we're also fighting for ourselves and, and the rest of the world. So I don't see the U.S. and other allies pulling out anytime soon. I think that one of the reasons Ukraine is going to be, a, be victorious here is because if there's periods where Russia begins to get an upper hand, I think the West is just going to increase its involvement. And we, we've already seen that. There's been sort of a, an inflationary increase in what countries like the U.S. have been willing to do. They're 
doing things today that they probably said they wouldn't have done back in February. But the circumstances required it, and countries have continued to step up. And I think that's, I don't think that's going to end until this is over. And I don't think it's going to end until it's over with Ukraine being the victor and getting the things that it should, like its land back and reparations. Donald Trump said that if he were, he, if he, if he uh, was the president, uh, this war would never happen. Well, let's be, let's be realistic and honest. Had he been president, it may be that this war wouldn't have happened, but I think something else would have happened. I mean, I, I think we all understand that circumstances beget other circumstances. So things may not have played out exactly the way they have, but I don't think the Putin-Trump relationship was such that if it made sense to Trump to do, to, to uh, move on this invasion, believing it would take only three days, that having, a, having Donald Trump in the White House would have prevented him. Things that followed might have been different, could have been worse, could have been better. I don't know the answer because that's not what happened. We know what has happened is it didn't take three days. And I think it's pretty clear today that Ukraine is has the upper hand. I think a great fear for many Ukrainians, but also for many uh, many Poles, many people from Central Europe, is that uh, the very day that Putin steps down or die uh, is replaced by anyone. Uh, the West will just accept this person as uh, well as a new start, and uh, will give up even some Ukrainian land for peace. Well, first of all, I don't think the U.S. or any other Western country other than Ukraine can give up Ukrainian land because it's Ukrainian's land. So, you know, I personally would take that off the table. They could lobby for it, but they certainly are not in a position to actually do it. I agree that that is a concern, that it could be easy politically to just accept any replacement, any alternative, and then you give that person and that leadership team, you know, a, a hundred days or some window to prove they're on the right side or the wrong side. Um, But I think there's too many forces at play here. I think the world is too far engaged to just passively accept what happens next. Um, I think if, if Putin is gone and he's replaced by someone like Putin or worse, then I don't think what the West has already amassed as a force against Russia is going to go away because I think the recognition is still there that this is a threat to global peace, the global economy, and it's just an outright assault on human rights and, and dignity of life. American government realizes the gravity of the situation, but uh, does American society realize that the war between Russia and Ukraine is not only a war between Russia and Ukraine, that it can end up in world war, and, uh, well, that the way to prevent it is not by signing the peace deal as fast as, the possible, as possible. Give me a minute. To, I want to make sure I understand your question because um, I thought you were going to go somewhere else. So you're asking me... I'm sorry, can you ask a question again? Yes. Uh, so the US government realizes the gravity of the war yes. between Russia and Ukraine and they realize that this war can end up in the world war. But apparently they also realize that the, signing the peace deal as fast as possible is not the right solution because this actually can lead to the world war instead of arming Ukraine. As many critics say that arming Ukraine is just fueling the war. Uh, but 
does society, American society, understand the necessity of helping Ukraine, arming Ukraine, and uh, do they understand that it actually prevents the world war? Well, I think there's a case to be made that it already is a world war. It just looks different than the previous two world wars. Uh, I can't speak for all Americans, but I can tell you that my read of American society is the vast majority understand the danger of taking the wrong moves here, of supporting the wrong quote-unquote peace plan. I mean, there is no peace plan to sign today, so we know that's not going to happen. But I think most Americans... I think Americans are looking back to the time of, for instance, Ronald Reagan, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, and I think the the wisdom of Reagan's words about freedom and democracy um, ring truer today than for many Americans than maybe they even did during the time when he was president. You know, we've had a lot of time to mature and see the world change around us. So I don't think the will of most Americans is going to soften or break. I think they are going to continue to support supporting Ukraine because they understand that if Ukraine falls, which country's next? And then which country's next? And then which country's next? And you know, we're all feeling the impact of this war, but I think most Americans understand that if we give in to Russia, it's only going to get worse. I have the impression, um, watching some American experts and publicists, journalists, that um, especially conservative uh, part, the most conservative part of the Republican Party and its supporters, Uh, I see two things. One, they would like this war to end as fast as possible because they don't perceive Russia as the biggest threat. They perceive China as the biggest threat. And the second thing I I notice is that um, many of so-called realists, uh, they don't really seem to acknowledge the right of uh, nations uh, to to independence. Uh, They think that uh, the war should be solved between the US and Russia, not including even Ukraine. (laughs) Well, I mean, first of all, I can't speak for the American people. I can just tell you my perception. And and yes, there is, I think, a very small minority who adopt the views you've just said. You know, we should just get it over with. We should be appeasers. China's a bigger problem. Uh, And yeah, I mean, I see things on social media all the time, but people speaking in a way that makes it sound as if the U.S. will determine what happens here, not Ukraine. Ukraine, You know, it's, it's, it's Ukraine's land. Ultimately, it's their right to decide how this ends, right? Um, China is a threat, but I think smart people worldwide understand that what happens here in, you know, in a way, Ukraine's like a proxy, right? This is like a proxy war for, for the entire West. If Russia is able to claim legitimate victory in this war, what is the message that sound, what is the message that that sends to China? It says, go for it, baby. We did it. We won. You go for it. You can do it and you'll win. And I'll tell you, in fact, the day of the invasion, my... Did I have incredible concern for the country of Ukraine and the people of Ukraine? Absolutely. But I have another concern, and I began calling friends who are, you know, much greater experts at geopolitics than I am, uh, and asking them, could we see an invasion of Taiwan by China in the next day or the next week? Could this actually be uh, a collaborative project between Russia and China? That was one of my biggest concerns, because how would this have played out if both of those countries had invaded another sovereign nation at the same time? How would the world have reacted to that? So 
China is a threat, but this is part of the threat. You can't separate them. They're not separate issues. They're all bound together. Uh, the issue is I'm talking not about some, well, you said minority, yes, but it's very loud minority. I'm talking about people like Mersheimer or uh, Jordan Peterson or other um, many people um, many people uh, connected with uh, Fox News. Musk, right? I mean, you know, he's, he, he weighed in with his peace plan. Well, look, I, I live in a country that's a democracy. I want the same for Russia. Those people have the right to have their opinions and they have their right to go on Twitter and YouTube and network television and express their opinions. They're, they don't have the votes of the people. They merely have the opinions of themselves. And, and I will stand for their right to say those things as strongly as I disagree with them. Thank you very much. If I can say one other thing, you know, not only will I stand for their right to say those things, I want Russians to be able to debate things in the same way. That's why I'm here. I, I think that debate is necessary, whether I like what the other party is saying or not, and I want the same thing for the people of Russia. I want them to be able to express themselves whether they agree or disagree with the government. So I need to ask you one more question. Freedom of speech, is it more important than the truth? Or should government, for example, be allowed to limit freedom of speech, for example, in order to prevent spreading of fake news? I don't think you can have freedom of speech and have a ministry of truth. I think you can disprove things. I think it's an unfortunate, you know, we're seeing in my country, the US, the United States, uh, there's a lot of misinformation and people believe it, but I think it's, you know, I talked earlier about democracy being a journey. I think it's part of the journey. Part of it's the access to information, the influence of technology, the influence of infiltrators, like, you know, we believe the Russians, you know, influenced our election of 2016. Uh, Um, but I don't think we can begin to chip away at the basic principles of democracy to fight that. We have to somehow learn as a nation, and frankly as a world, to deal with these new forms of communication and new forms of misinformation while standing true to the principles of democracy. And we'll get through this because it's a journey, it's not a destination. Thank you very much. You're welcome. This was The Political Periscope. The podcast is released every Thursday at 7 p.m. 